Hi everyone, this is Pete. In a change to our scheduled programme, we have another out-of-office episode today whilst we sun ourselves on the beaches of Saint-Tropez. History happened everywhere. Out of office, a random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard and I am sort of here in the HHE studio with the thieving seagull to my bag of chips, Mr. Ryan Weir. <laughs> chips are good and worth stealing. I was looking for a beachfront uh, analogy for us there. That was good, I like it. They're scary, those seagulls. They know what they're doing. Their very uh, intent is very clear with those guys, they're isn't fast, it? They're fast, they're terrifying and they eat trash. They will eat anything, including beachfront chips. Mm. So for this out-of-office episode, the Dursleiter gave us energy in Bouvet Island during 1950 to present. That's right, Bouvet Island. I'm bringing a lot to the table on this one, Ryan, let me tell you. My <laughs> knowledge about Bouvet Island is that it's called Bouvet Island. That's everything there. So I'm hoping you can tell us something exciting. I will. Uh, on today's out-of-office episode, we are going to take a break on a truly deserted island. But this is no normal holiday destination, Pete. So come on, put the suntan lotion away. Forget about the sandals, because we're heading south to a tiny ice-covered speck of rock in the sub-Antarctic. Ooh, yeah. holiday. <laughs> here we're going to find the means to re-energise ourselves. Ooh, see what we did there. Yep, we're going to erupt with happiness and go with the flow. We're going to get the wind blown up us. We'll meet the food that everybody dines on, and we'll dive deep to search the seabed for jewels. Ooh. Finally, we'll explode with joy as we head into space to learn about the mysterious power that lurks behind the Vela incident. Step into my helicopter, Peter. It's time to head for land. Chocks away. We don't really need chocks on a helicopter, do you? Not really. <laughs> Let's just eat chock. All oh, right. <laughs> Frigid temperatures, oceanic cliffs and deadly isolation. A few square miles of uninhabited volcanic basalt groaning under several hundred feet of glacier. A tiny land shrouded by drifts of sea fog and scraped raw by ice storms. It's deadly, it's dangerous, and there's penguins. Yay! Welcome to the most remote, the least visited location in the world. <laughs> Welcome to the land of the lost, the last place on Earth. Welcome to Bouvet Island. So, where do I begin? And you can start literally anywhere on this one, Ryan, except for it's called Bouvet Island, which is my knowledge so far. Uh, well, look, let's find it first, shall we? On okay. a map. You're going to need a magnifying glass. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're going to find Antarctica. Yep, I've got a good bit of the sense bottom, of where right? that is. Yep, you're going to head north into the South Atlantic. Okay. okay. Somewhere midway between the tip of both South America and Africa. So find the tips of the bottom bits of those. I've got them. Somewhere in between the middle of that, between that and Antarctica, Bouvet Island. Uh, in Norwegian, it's called Bouvaya. That pronunciation is not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Norway. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, because despite being 13,000 kilometers away from Norway, Bouvet Island is an uninhabited Norwegian territory administered by the Polar Department of the Ministry of Justice and Police in Oslo. I like to think there's one policeman who's assigned that beat. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> Come on. Anyway, with the nearest land being the coast of Antarctica, over 1,000 miles away, <laughs> Bouvet Island is the most remote location in the world. In fact, if you were to draw a circle on a map with a radius of 1,000 miles, you would create an area the size of Europe. You would not find any other land whatsoever. 
Wow. It is very isolated. Standing on Bouvet Island means you are actually closer to astronauts on the International Space Station than anyone else on Earth. So your best bet in order to seek help is to go up. Yeah, you might as well. (laughs) (laughs) Unorthodox, but I'll try it. (laughs) So it's small. Bouvet measures just 58 square kilometres. That's 19 square miles, which makes it 11,255 Bouvet Islands to a France. Oh, I think that's our smallest yet, isn't it? It's pretty small, yeah. And it's a volcanic island. It rises sharply from the sea. It has steep cliffs on all sides, which makes getting onto the island super tricky. Today, most people just arrive by helicopter because it's just easier that way. Most people being one or two people by the sound of Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll come to those people, but yes, it's only a few. There is a small beach. It's in the northwestern corner of the island, uh, so you can reach it by boat, but it's said that you are literally taking your own life in your hands if you do. Right. Any TripAdvisor reviews for that location? (laughs) Only beach in town. Uh, And it's icy. 93% of the surface of the island is covered in thick glacial ice, several hundred feet deep. So... When I think of glacial ice, I think there's a sort of, there's a source, there's mm-hmm. a river that's frozen, essentially. So when we say glacial ice in this case, do we mean it was once glacier or there's an, an active moving glacier coming over the top of the island? I assume it's a, an, a, an, an active movement of ice that is slowly moving down because as the snow lands on top of the island, because it's sort of dome shaped, it, it gradually slides downwards, I guess, right. because of okay. gravity. So I don't think there's like a, a river source or anything. There's nothing like, I mean, there isn't a river source. (laughs) Um, So I think it's just the pressure on the central part, which then pushes it down. Uh, The average annual temperature on Bouvet is minus one degree Celsius, 31.4 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's pretty chilly there. Olevtoppen. Yes. Olevtoppen. It's the highest peak on the island at 780 metres tall. Well, it sounds like the island is just a peak, really. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. But you're not going to get a good view from the top because the island is almost entirely shrouded in dense fog all year round. It gets more and more appealing, this place, doesn't it? (laughs) It's honestly, I have loved studying about Bouvet Island. It's amazing. I, I wish I could say I'd love to go. I really don't want to go. It's fine. Yeah, normally you develop an affection for these places that makes you want to visit, but it doesn't sound like this place has won you over in quite the same way. No, there was big fanfare that was made when NASA was able to get a clear satellite photo of Bouvet Island. It's like been taken once or something. It's definitely there. We've yeah. seen it. But here it is. Everyone look. This is what it looks like. And then the cloud came back again. Super Super weird. What a mysterious island. And anyway. there are there giant animals on this island, I have yeah. to ask. <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, what's on there? There's ice, there is rock, there is wind, there is fog, there are seals, there are penguins, there are seabirds, and lots of moss. Moss? <laughs> yes, much the most moss. fascinating of all the algae-type things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, it's now designated a nature reserve. So you do need permission to go there, but it's not like they've got police or any sort of immigration there. So it you... sounds like a self-policing island in many ways. If you can get onto the island, good luck to you, I think is pretty much what they say. Uh, right. So uh, national anthem, funnily enough, it's the Norwegian territory. So we're going to play the Norway national anthem. Okay. So, so here we go. This is from the classic tradition of plodding, marching. But imagine yourself on a boat, heading through the fog. Yeah, emerging from the mist, this would be quite good. Big, steep cliff. Ahead of you, desolate land. Penguins everywhere. (laughs) Looking at you. They're all standing to attention, at least. (laughs) Showing some respect to the anthem. Oh, I like this bit. This feels like a difficult sing-along. Oh, yeah. Probably fine in Norwegian. I feel like you could fit the word olive top in there. <laughs> All right, there you go. Woo! Bouvet facts! There are bouvet facts. <laughs> there are bouvet facts. Are you ready? Go for it. Okay. Bouvet Island has its own emoji. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the Norwegian flag, but, you know. Mm, okay. It's an emoji. <laughs> but You, you type in Bouvet Island, it'll show you the Norwegian flag. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But if you l- commented with the flag, you're not going to get someone going, Bouvet! 
buffet. <laughs> no, there aren't many people that go buffet. <laughs> uh, there is no electricity on the island. It might surprise you to learn. There is no telephone, but there is a web domain. Ooh, that's right. The Internet Assigned Numbers Authority, the people what give out domain addresses like .com, .co.uk and all those, gave Bouvet its own .bv address. Wow. How about that? Have they got a lot of servers on the island? <laughs> well, it seems pretty useless, doesn't it, given that the island is uninhabited, but that doesn't stop others from wanting to use it. It could, in fact, actually be a huge income generation for Norway. Tuvalu opened up their .tv domain for general use, and it now accounts for nearly 10% of their total revenue. Yeah, I can see .tv being a bit more useful than .bv, though. Well, yes, for perhaps us here in England, but in the Netherlands, .bv is similar to, like, incorporated or limited. Ah! So, for them... A line of Dutch waiting at the foggy border. <laughs> Give us the domain! <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before you get too excited, Pete, uh, because I did get excited and I tried to <laughs> I tried to hhepodcast.bv and Norway has decided that uh, it's going to remain unused. Oh, that's classic Norway. They've always been frugal and sensible. Release the BV! <laughs> <laughs> right, and finally, Bouvet Island uh, is the location for the 2004 movie Alien vs. Predator. No way! That's exactly right. The film follows a group of archaeologists assembled by an eccentric billionaire for an expedition to investigate a mysterious heat signal on Bouvet Island. No way! That's right. Uh, There they uncover an ancient alien pyramid and mayhem begins. For those who haven't seen it, essentially you start on some snow Mm -hmm. and they go into a tunnel in the snow and then there is one and a half hours of almost complete darkness. That's my (laughs) recollection of that film. (laughs) One star. (laughs) I didn't believe it. So I watched Alien vs. Predator. Oh, the things you do for a podcast, (laughs) you hero. And look, here we go. Where exactly on the ice is this? Bovatoya Island. But it's not on the ice. It's 2,000 feet below it. Bovatoya is one of the most isolated places in the world. The nearest land is 1,000 miles away. There's no help if we run into trouble. You're right. It's a no man's land. But the train has left the station. And I think I speak for everyone aboard this ship. This is worth the risk. Wow. So, hey, I think I've discovered one of your sources of facts. <laughs> but then I have a question. They said Bouvetoye Island. Yeah, which is the American version of the Bouvetoye, which is what I said is the, Nor- the actual oh, Norwegian Oh, that's the Norwegian it. version. Yeah. So the Norwegians say Bouvaya, which means Bouvet, and Island, which is Ouya. So Bouvet, Island, ah, Bouvaya. I understand that. And the Americans went Bouvetoye. Because it's <laughs> Close spe- enough. It's Nobody literally, cares. It's literally <laughs> spelt Bouvetoye, if you need to say it. <laughs> Anyway, there you go. It is in Alien vs. Predator. Wow, that's made me not want to watch that film again. Yeah, although it's probably worth pointing out, whilst it's set there, it was not filmed there. Oh. They did not send everyone to film Alien vs. Predator. <laughs> <laughs> six months and there hasn't been a break in the clouds. <laughs> anyway, there you go. That's that bit. Good stuff. Do you want to hear some more? Yes, sir. Let's hear some history, shall we? Let's have it. After this. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. What are you working on? Well, I've just finished, actually. This is a scale model of Bouvet Island. What? This? Yeah. But that's just a pebble with an ice cube on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bouvet Island. Mm, Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. Hmm. I've also been working on this scale model of the studio. Oh, wow. Yeah, look at that. You've got the table and the microphones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's that on my seat? It looks like a big, horrible slug wearing an H-H-E t-shirt. That's you. But why am I a big horrible slug in an H-H-E t-shirt? Well, because I couldn't get an H-H-E sweatshirt small enough to fit it. Oh, fair enough. H-H-E t-shirts available on hhepodcast.com. Terms and conditions apply. Slug size may not be available. Okay, so 500,000 years ago, the island was formed. I'm going to guess it bubbled up from the lava in the ground and then was an island. Have you been looking at my notes? <laughs> I just have an unerring instinct for these things. Yeah, but like a lot of the mystery around this island, it's a bit weird that it did happen. Volcano islands tend to form in a chain, so you get like a number of them. Right. It's rare that you just get one, especially in the middle of nowhere. So it's a bit special that it just suddenly is there by itself. Anyway. I think it's a planetary zit, one of those little ice isolated lone zits that appear in you on you sometimes norway should use that on all their advertising the, z- <laughs> the planetary zit <laughs> uh, right so for five hundred thousand years as far as we know nothing happened on the island uh, then 
1739. A couple of French exploration vessels head out on an exploratory mission in the Antarctic, under the command of Jean-Baptiste Charles Bouvet Aha! <laughs> de Lozier. Wait! <laughs> <laughs> and him and his crew are looking for a large southern continent, which they suspect is somewhere in the region. Eventually, through the dense fog, Bouvet spots land. Now, he doesn't stop. He doesn't go around it. So he doesn't know it's an island. He thinks maybe this is it. So he just jots down the position and then heads off to see if there's anything else with a view that he'll come back and check it out later. That's amazing to me. I did think the first thing you do is have a little look around and see, just to carry on going, all right, I'll I'll come back to that. I mean, to be fair, it was super dangerous and he was in an old rickety boat. Ah, yeah, good point. Yeah, but... It turns out, Pete, he wrote the position down wrong. (laughs) So he couldn't find it again. So that was it. It effectively just disappeared off again, off the map again, back into the fog. Uh, Several other expeditions set out because they hear about this island and they're like, there is something there. So they head off to try and locate it, but they fail because obviously the location was wrong that it it jotted down. Most notably, James Cook. Oh, yeah. His second voyage in 1772. He headed off to try and find it. Couldn't find it. Until 1808. When James Lindsay, captain of a whaling ship, the Swan, he stumbles upon it purely by accident. And this time, Lindsay circles around it and he realises that it is an island and not a continent. And uh, he tries to find a place to land, but seeing that it's pretty much entirely steep cliffs, he can't land. So he just records the position correctly this time (laughs) and he leaves. 1825, George Norris, master of the Sprightly. Oh, I'd love to have a boat called the Sprightly. Welcome aboard the Sprightly. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he finds the island next and he manages to get on the land. Wow. Yeah, he clambers up a cliff or whatever and he becomes the first person to step onto the island. It's official. There is nothing here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Anyway, so he names it Liverpool Island. Because there's nothing here. (laughs) So. Sorry, Liverpool. <laughs> no, you just saw some Beatles. Hey! <laughs> and he claims it for the British. So, flag down. Liverpool Island. We never met a bit of land. We weren't willing to wham a flag in and worry about whether it was useful later. There you go. Now, side note, Norris also spots a second island, which he names Thompson Island. And he charts that at about 72 kilometres, 45 miles away. Now, later expeditions also spot Thompson Island as well, right? They they jot that down. They're like, oh, there's another island. Even putting it on maps until as late as 1943. But Pete, since then, the island hasn't been found by anyone else. Super spooky, right? Nice. Yeah. Some say it disappeared as part of a volcanic eruption, but in 1997, it was discovered that the ocean is more than 2,400 metres, nearly 8,000 feet deep in the area. So that's likely not the case. So it truly is a mystery. Wow. I'm thinking of Lost, the TV show. Yeah, they're out there somewhere in uh, purgatory. (laughs) Spoilers. (laughs) 1898. Who arrives then? Don't say uh, early man. Portuguese. It's close. It's the Germans. Oh, the Germans. They don't often ship up in these areas. They don't, but they do arrive this time. And this time they accurately fix the island's position. Right. Where is this wandering island that keeps moving around? So they, they jot it down and now everybody knows exactly where, where the island is. We're not going to skip past it anymore. 1926. Harold Hornwert, a whaler. He sets out from Norway on an expedition to chart unknown territories. On the 1st of December, he finds Bouvet Island. He lands and he plants the Norwegian flag in the name of King Hakon VII, and he renames the land Bouvaya, Bouvet Island. So he's deliberately named it after the guy who got it completely wrong the first time. Yeah. Anyway, look, he just planted his flag down. Whose flag was there first? The British. Exactly. So his claim for Norway is contested by the British. You go, that is what we used to do. Exactly. Still do, and given the right circumstances. <laughs> the British say, hey, look, we got there first. But after some uncertainty over whether or not they had planted their flag on this other mysterious Thompson Island. Oh. Yeah, they, 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 were, they were like, was it, did you really do it? Or did you do it on Thompson Island? You don't know, because the Germans, remember, were the ones to accurately position it. So they there was some confusion and Britain sort of just went, uh, you know what? Fine. That's why you have to invest in a really sturdy flag. If it was still there, they wouldn't have had a problem. I don't know, man. In, in ice storm winds, I'm guessing it's probably not going to last very long. But, big uh, waterproof. Big waterproof <laughs> flag. 
Um, so they just gift it to Norway, <laughs> as, as you do. 1929, aerial photos are taken for the first time of the island, so they're able to actually see what it looks like from above. This is the first Antarctic expedition to use aircraft. Uh, Where did they set out from, the aircraft? From the boat, I guess. It's oh, 19, right. 1929, right? Oh, so, right, okay. There's... Yeah. Little biplane. That's a brave action, isn't it? Now you've got to find the boat to get back to. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in winds as well. Anyway, 1934, a British naval vessel appears, the HMS Milford, and it sets up on board a post office issuing Norwegian stamps with Bouvet written across them. Cape Town, which is obviously the nearest postal service for them to be able to get them to, accepts these, sends them all to Norway, but Poston Norge rejects them. Oh, <laughs> boo. Well, you can't just meet your own stamps, can you? That's really I mean, come on. It's not many, <laughs> can't have been many letters from Bouvet they were expecting. Anyway, in total, between 1926 to 1945, there are nine expeditions which are sent to Bouvet Island. Four of the vessels are called Norvega, and since then, all future expeditions and even the permanent research station based there today has been called Norvega. Nice. 1964, Pete. Another mystery. The British naval ship HMS Protector arrives. They land with a small survey team just for a little brief visit. And in a small lagoon, they discover an abandoned lifeboat. Oh, wow. Just lying there all on its own. In quotes. What drama, we wondered, was attached to this strange discovery? There were no markings to identify its origin or nationality. On the rocks, a hundred yards away, was a 44-gallon drum and a pair of oars, with pieces of wood and a copper flotation or buoyancy tank opened out flat for some purpose. Thinking castaways might have landed, we made a brief search, but found no human remains. Oh, that's awesome. Killed by penguins. Probably. Yeah. After a short search, they leave, the weather turns bad, um, <laughs> and yeah, and, and the identity of the lifeboat remains a mystery. Wow. Did people get cast away on the island? We will maybe find out one day, but not right today. Uh, some studies point to the boat being a possible Soviet scientific reconnaissance vessel, but no one really knows if it was occupied when it landed or not. Maybe it just sort of detached from the ship and floated there or something. But it's a bit weird, like that weird copper buoyancy tank opened out opened flat. Out. That didn't just land, did it? It must have been made like that to some extent. You'd think so, yeah. <gasps> a mystery. Another mystery for the island. 1971, it's a big year for Bouvet. Norway designates the island and its surrounding waters a nature reserve. Six years later, 1977, an unstaffed automatic weather station is established, followed a year later by a staffed research station. They only stay there for a couple of months during the year, but um, yeah, that's That's, that's got to be a hard posting, hasn't it? For a couple of months on Bouvet <laughs> Island, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I guess people do it in the Antarctic, right? Yeah, so, I guess. Yeah. 1989, to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the initial discovery of the island, a group of Norway Norwegian amateur radio operators, they mount what's called a DX Pedition, DX being the radio shorthand for distance. So they go onto the island and they set up a radio and they talk to people all the way around the world from there. And in fact, that's continued since then. And the, the most famous of these amateur radio operators is an astronaut. Dr. Charles Chuck Brady from NASA, who was one of those who travelled there. He made a total of 17,000 radio calls from Bouvet to people all the way around the world. Well, you would, wouldn't you? What shall I do today? (laughs) Hello? Hello? Anyone out there at all? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so 1996, the Norwegian Polar Institute gets excited and they set up a research station on the island. They use an old shipping container, but a combination of an earthquake, a winter storm and an avalanche tosses the container out to sea. The island is angry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you might want to just leave it alone after all this. Not to be outdone, Norway goes back and they build a permanent building there now. And that was established in 2014. Named Norvegia. The station is located on the northwest corner of the island and is where the institute visits for a couple of months every year. And they study, monitor seals, penguins, other seabirds. And that brings us to today. That is a remarkable island for a place which clearly has absolutely bog all on it. (laughs) No shops or anything to speak of. That is remarkable. Plenty of mystery and excitement. It's a fascinating place, isn't it? You can see. And but what they did the predators and the aliens land? It must have been after five hundred thousand. So I don't know, maybe hundred thousand years. Hundred thousand. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. sense. Yeah, that tracks. That does track. (laughs) 
a beautiful Bouvet Island. Nestled in the brisk South Atlantic Ocean, you can play with the penguins, roam the island's glorious glacier, or just take some time for you. Enjoy our full range of weathers, from dense fog to denser fog. You'll be staying on the most luxurious building on the island, and the only building on the island. Moss enthusiasts will have plenty to enjoy. Awake each morning to the chorus of squawking penguins and mating seals. Take a walk up the island, or across the island, or around the island. Beautiful Bouvet. You'll wonder how you can ever leave. So, Pete, what is energy? Energy? Yeah. Wow, it's... It's what you lack. Mass times acceleration or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, energy is everything. Oh, right. Right? You weren't expecting that, were you? You really, really broadened this topic with a bit of sleight of hand there, didn't you? And it's everywhere. Everything everywhere. Now. It's everything and it's everywhere. <laughs> it's one of the true constants of the universe. And we know that because as long as there has been a universe, there has been energy. It's found in different forms. So you might think of heat, light, motion, electrical, chemical, mechanical, elastic, magnetic, gravitational. Uh, and it all amounts to the same thing, the ability to do work. With work, meaning the act of displacing something by applying force to it. So, for example, if you were to stomp on a balloon, the force of your foot hitting the rubber balloon is turned into the force of air, which is then being released with a bang. If you eat a tasty burger, the energy from that food is broken down for all of the quadrillions of cells within your body to do all the things that you need them to be able to do. Sit in a chair with a laptop. <laughs> yes. In my case. <laughs> um, the balloon bursting. The burger powering your body, the devices that people are using to listen to this podcast right now, all of that is work being done. And just because we can't see, touch, smell or experience energy, it does exist in everything all around us. Because all the bonds between all of the atoms in every molecule that makes up a thing contains energy. Even the stuff that we might look at and think is sort of dead and lifeless, like, you know, imagine you look at a, an old log or something. Uh, it's actually full of chemicals that can be converted into energy. Like with the log, for an example, heat and light can be created in the form of fire. So it contains energy, even though it doesn't look like it might do. But it also contains nuclear energy too. Ooh. This is where I'm going to get in trouble. Nuclear energy. <laughs> Each atom has a nucleus, which is made up of protons and neutrons. And the energy which binds those together is some of the most powerful sources of energy in the universe. If you were to split an atom apart and rip its protons and neutrons apart, you would release all of the energy that is within that. And there's so much nuclear energy in one atom that if we ripped apart all the atoms in that old log, for example, we were talking about, the HHE studio would be a massive smouldering crater and everyone in Croydon would be dead. Right, let's not do that. Okay, well, I'll put the log down then, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Step away from the log. <laughs> so while there are many types of energy, they can all be used to do work, whether it's move people on a bicycle, cars along the roads, boats through water, cook some food, make some ice, light homes, manufacture products, send astronauts into space. It will do all of those things. But the thing to remember is that energy never goes away. It can never be destroyed and it can never be created. It can only be transferred from one thing to another. Like the meat in the burger, which you eat, gets transferred to you. And then let's say you die <laughs> and then worms eat your body and it just continually transfers and transfers and just continues to become energy. And essentially that's it, right? The universe is a constant flow of recycled energy. It's either potential energy waiting to be converted or it's kinetic energy that is actively being worked. Point being, energy is everything. So we're going to talk about everything. <laughs> that Settle is in for an 18-hour podcast. <laughs> so we're not going to talk about everything, but we are going to talk about some of the more awesome forms of energy on Bouvet Island. Are you okay? Not really. What's wrong? I just, I think we need to talk. 
Oh, what, what about? About, about us. Has something happened? I've just been thinking, and you know, we've been together for a very long time now. Yeah. And I just don't think it's working. What, what do you mean? It's not working. I'm a proton, you're a neutron. We're perfect for each other. Well, you would say that. You, you know, you're always so positive. I, c- I can change. No, it, it's just who you are. But what about our special bond? Well, that's the problem. I need space. Are you seeing someone else? No, it's not about that. Is, is it me? No, it, it's not you. It's me. I just can't do this anymore. I think we should go our own separate way. So you're saying you want to split up? Yeah, I'm sorry, but I think we should split. Well, fine, if that's the way you want to go, do it. Do it now, split! I'm sorry, I'm sorry! So let's start with energy on the island. The Mid-Atlantic Ridge is the longest mountain chain on Earth. It runs underwater along the Atlantic Ocean for up to 10,000 miles. Wow. 16,000 kilometers long from sort of North America all the way down to the southern tip of Africa, where Bouvet Island is, at the junction of the African, South American, and the Antarctic plates. Three tectonic plates, they all meet together, and Bouvet is right in the middle of all three of those. Ah, well... That may explain why it existed in the first place. Yes, exactly. I resisted talking about the energy of ley lines for this episode, (laughs) (laughs) but there was something perhaps for the verdict. (laughs) So beneath the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is a huge amount of volcanic activity. Magma from within the earth oozes through those cracks in the seafloor and the lava forms a new layer of crust. This new layer then pushes those tectonic plates apart and Africa, South America and Antarctica drift away from each other. Now, sometimes the volcanic activity reaches the surface and it forms these deep ocean islands. Now, if I were to ask you to draw a volcano, you'd probably draw sort of like a classic triangular pointy shape. Yeah, a triangular shape with a kind of scoop off the top. The scoop off the top, exactly, right? Where it forms like a high peak. Yeah. Anyway, that is formed when you get repeated eruptions that spew out thick magma. And that magma slides down slowly down the sides of the volcano and cools to form a steep rock peak. Bouvet Island is different. It forms instead from a series of more fluid lava. And when it comes out, it sort of flows into a thin sheet rather than into a peak um, because it's just thinner. And it's that steady accumulation of thin sheets of lava which builds up a dome rather than like a peak. And in fact, it's called a shield volcano because it looks like a shield. Like think of Captain America's shield. Right. It looks similar to that. Sloppy lava. Sloppy lava, exactly. Now, a number of large eruptions have occurred on Bouvet Island. The last one occurred around 2,000 years ago. And the crater of that is still visible today. And it is a large circular depression on the western side of the island. The core of it is now ice, right, from, from the glacier. Now, since that eruption, the volcano has now ended what is considered its final stage of its life. So you wouldn't want to probably be on the island in, let's say, 200,000 years' time. Okay, I'll bear that in mind. It would likely be gone. Uh, Now, we say slightly dormant because sometime after 1955, a small eruption did take place on the island. Uh, And we know that because lava vented into the sea on the northwesternmost part of the island and created like a low-lying lava plateau. And it measured about 360 metres long by about 150 metres wide. And that new plateau was super pleasing to the Norwegians because they now had a more convenient landing platform (laughs) (laughs) instead of those steep cliffs. Anyway, the Norwegians, they named it Nirosa, meaning New Mound. So there you go. Um, In 1978, a survey was taken on Bouvet Island and the underground temperature at just 30 centimetres deep was measured to be 25 degrees Celsius, 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. So warm. Toasty. Not not hot, but 
you know, warm. Now, in many other volcanic locations, underground heat can be used as geothermal energy, right? Yes. You can plug into the magma and sort of generate turbines. I think Iceland does a lot of that sort of thing, don't they? Exactly. And there's a lot of places that do. Now, Bouvet Island doesn't do that. 25 degrees is about half the amount required for most useful applications. Can so. make a cup of tea out of it, so I'm no longer interested. <laughs> you could just warm your toes. Yeah, it's something, but it's not enough. You want more energy? I do. Okay, well, let's talk about wind. Ooh. So, scientists that visit Bouvet Island call it impressive, beautiful, and scary as hell to work with. All right, mostly because the weather is just so dangerously variable. Bouvet lies within a belt of winds that hurtle around the earth from west to east. You've probably heard them called the westerlies. Yeah, yes. And the winds are so strong that for any scientist working on the surface of Bouvet Island, they can only be there for a matter of hours before the clouds start to descend and the freezing winds howl in in storms raging at 50 knots. That's 90 kilometers an hour, 57 miles per hour. Right? So a kite of some kind should it's be packed. Officially a storm. It creates 10 metre high waves and is strong enough to uproot trees if the island had any, <laughs> which it doesn't. It's like, well, it's a good job there are no trees or other features here. <laughs> yeah, but you can see how like an entire shipping container might be blown over, yeah, over the island and into the sea. So the strength of that wind is useful, right? There is a remote unmanned weather station uh, and that's based on the island and it uses electricity generated by the power of the winds to keep its cameras and meteorological sensors continually transmitting data via satellite to provide year-round scientific data. Weather today, windy and cloudy. <laughs> yeah, you do. Oh, such scientific data. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about energy off the island. Okay. So Norway has a large oil industry. Oh, yes, it does. Yeah, and it's been generating most of the state's revenues since the 1970s. And it is now one of the world's wealthiest states because of its oil production. Now, the Arctic, the one in the north, is the principal mining area for Norway. But in 2015, the Norwegian government published a strategy for securing access to natural resources in the Southern Ocean too. Now, the Southern Ocean, as a region, is large, and it contains just 4% of the world's total discovered oil reserves. Just 4% of all the oil has been discovered there, so there is a lot left sitting there waiting to be discovered. Only 2.4% of the world's total gas reserves have been uh, have been plundered there. So there's a lot of oil and gas, is what I'm saying. And the Bouvet Territory covers uh, about a 200 nautical mile area. Um, so there's a lot of territory in the waters around Bouvet, that Norway might consider it could use. So curious to see whether or not they'd ever explored those resources, I reached out to Ola Anders Skorby, Director of Communication, Public Affairs and Emergency Response at the Norwegian Petroleum Directorate, and they said, The Bouvet Island Territory was declared a nature reserve in 1971 and is not opened for commercial exploration. No permits for petroleum exploration has ever been given for this territory, but the NPD the Norwegian Petroleum Directorate, from time to time, gives permits to scientific research expeditions. So, what does that mean? Well, it means that no drilling has taken place to find any oil or gas in the Bouvet Island area. Uh, and the reasons behind not doing so, um, you know, are identified. They've said it's a nature reserve, right? So it's a kind of an ecologically minded decision. But there might also be another reason why they're not doing it. And that reason might be financial. Estimates of exploiting commercially viable oil wells in nearby Antarctica suggest it would cost Norway over a hundred US dollars a barrel just to extract the oil. Oh, and it sells for what, forty dollars a barrel? Yeah, at the <laughs> and that's when it's at its peak. So yeah, it's not commercially viable for them to be able to do it, even if they did find it. So a nature reserve, that's totally fine, right? And that's probably why in 2022, uh, Norway changed that 2015 strategy and ruled out granting any new oil exploration licenses in what they called virgin or little explored areas. Nice. Hooray. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah. Good stewards of the environment. Mind you, they've got plenty of oil still to work with, haven't they? So let's see how it goes when that stuff dries up. But that doesn't mean they've given up on the territory as a potential resource to be plundered. <laughs> <laughs> Phew. <laughs> that was almost too good to be true for a moment there. <laughs> in fact, as Norway seems to be moving away from oil and gas, they are instead focusing 
on harvesting the seabed for lucrative metals instead. Okay, so along that mid-Atlantic ridge, there are hydrothermal vents. Okay, these are known as black smokers or chimneys. You might have seen these in those deep sea submarines. I have footage. seen them on a David Attenborough or similar. Right, and they puff out black smoke, right? Now, these are tall chimneys that are on the seafloor and they release magma from the earth into the seawater around it. Now, within the magma are dissolved metals like copper, zinc, cobalt, gold, silver, and importantly, lithium. <sighs> lithium is a highly prized mineral used in the production of electrical batteries, cars, phones pretty much anything with a battery in it these days, lithium, right? Super important and expensive. So these minerals in the magma, they harden in the seawater and they drift down to the seabed where they then settle. So normally when we mine for minerals, we extract them from the ground, right? Well, it appears that Norway's plan is to now dig along the seabed and retrieve these metals. Wow, that's bold. Isn't it? But mining the seabed obviously presents enormous environmental challenges as well. There are giant tube worms, there are clamshells, there are crabs, microfauna, all relying on the vents where these minerals are found. So environmentalists are obviously very concerned about the possibility of damaging all of that, you know, and they're calling for a halt to any seabed mining until more is known about any of the impacts to those species which might live there. In fact, Greenpeace have gone one step further and they've called for a permanent ban straight away, saying that in Industrial scale deep sea mining might have a more substantial impact on the seabed habitat than oil and gas extraction combined. I mean, the words seabed mining do not conjure up images of a blissful ecological perfection. You think carnage, don't you? Chunking machines just <laughs> yeah. ripping things apart. Yeah hoovering up stuff. Yeah, it's it's not great if you're a crab, I'm guessing. Now, normally, the United Nations International Seabed Authority, which, of which course, is a thing, we're all we're all <laughs> we're all fans of. Uh, they regulate seabed uh, mineral activities, but Norway's territory, including Bouvet Island and its surrounding waters, is not considered international waters. And with estimates suggesting that Nordic deep sea mining could generate up to 20 billion dollars in annual revenue by 2050 and create about 20,000 jobs, you can see why Norway might look to license companies to conduct deep sea mining as early as 2023. Oh, come on, Norway, hold off. You're better than that. One of the first countries, along with Japan, to begin harvesting seabed metals. Ooh, that is bonkers. I thought better of the Norwegians. I thought they would protect it and love it and call it George. It is I, Hero of the Seas. Excellent. Thanks for coming. Can we get you a water? Oh, uh, yes, please. Still a sparkling. Do you have salty? Um, no. Sparkling's fine. Okay, so, we understand that you've been voicing some concerns about our proposed deep ocean economic development. You mean the devastation of my marine kingdom? Well, we prefer aquatic economic enhancement, but yes. First off, we want to say we completely understand your concerns and only want the best for the oceanic ecosystem. Good. It is about time you dry landers paid heed and refrained from scouring the seabed. But we were wondering if perhaps you could have a much more significant impact if we could help you communicate this essential message at a global level in partnership with Nordo Energy. But I am the master of the maritime world. When I speak, everyone listens. Yes, yes, of course. And our research shows you have exceptional reach amongst the fish and crustacean communities. However, it also shows an exciting growth opportunity in the human realm. Go on. Well, we think you can do more good by growing your brand to push your message further amongst mankind. Well, what did you have in mind? Aquaguy the movie. A three-picture deal starring Aquaguy. That's a terrible idea! You're right, you're right, of course. You're obviously absolutely not interested in money, no matter how many billions this would make at the box office. And of course you wouldn't want all those adoring fans chanting your name at the premiere. That's not what Aquaguy's about at all. I'm, I'm embarrassed to have suggested it. Well, don't be embarrassed. I mean... No, 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 it's our mistake. We didn't think this through. After all, what good is generational wealth and millions of fans? That would be intolerable for someone like you. Well, I, I mean, I think I could tolerate it for the good of the oceans. Do you think? 
Well, I mean, I have to get the message out there. Well, if if you think it's a good idea. I do. Right. And of course, a percentage of that could go to improving the underwater infrastructure. Octopus shelters, libraries for lobsters, schools for fish. Fish do like schools. So, if you are interested, and if you'd just like to sign here, here, and uh, here... Stop that! Mr. Tremendous! Don't sign that document, Aqua Guy. This deal is an outrage. You should at least hold out for merchandising rights. Oh, I think we could come to an arrangement. Okay, let's talk about more things off the island. What else is in the sea, Ryan? So... Despite being wildly remote, Bouvet is an important area for wildlife. Uh, we, we spoke about some of the things that were on there. Penguins, for example. There are other seabirds. An estimated 117,000 penguins breed on the island every year. It's a lot of penguins. Uh, seabirds like the Cape Petrel, the Antarctic Prion, the Wilson Storm Petrel, the Black-Bellied Storm Petrel, the Sub-Antarctic Squaw, the Southern Giant Petrel, the Snow Petrel, the Slender Bill Prion, and the Antarctic Tern. They all live and breed on Bouvet Island. Something of a petrol station, you might say. British joke. (laughs) (laughs) Other birds uh, that visit, they don't breed on the island, but they visit, include the wandering albatross, the Atlantic yellow-nosed albatross, the sooty albatross, the light-mantled albatross, the northern giant petrel, the Antarctic petrel, (laughs) the blue petrel, the soft-plumaged petrel, the Kagulan petrel, the white-headed petrel, the fairy prion, the white-chinned petrel, the great shearwater, the common diving petrel, the south polar squaw, and the parasitic jager. Whoa, who's that last guy who stood out amongst the petrol and albatross crowd? Oh, it's only the parasitic Jager. Anyway, and it's not just birds. Uh, The southern elephant seal, Antarctic fur seal, they both breed there too. Uh, In fact, an estimated 13,000 fur seal pups are bred there every season. Are they called fur seals because... Yes. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Hunting seals for fur. Anyway, they stop that. Good. Uh, yeah, and then in the waters around the island, you can find the southern right whale, the humpback whale, the fin whale, the southern right whale dolphin, the hourglass dolphin, and killer whales. Ooh. Anyway, almost all of these animals, they all come here to obtain energy, and they get that energy... From one another, I would imagine. <laughs> well, from one single food source, the krill. And according to surveys conducted in 2000, there are high concentrations of krill around Bouvet Island. Now, what is krill? I'm sure you're saying. Well, no, I know. It's clearly an alien race from Star Trek. <laughs> Do you know what? I thought that too. As I was like, <laughs> the krill. Yes. You will do as we say. <laughs> we are the krill. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so krill is a common name for any member of the crustacean order uh, known as Euphysiaceae. <laughs> Euphysiaceae. Got it. Yeah. Crabs, lobsters, crayfish, shrimp, and little woodlice things, you know, those things that roll up. Anyway, to date, 82 species of krill have been identified around the world, of which one species uh, is estimated to total 379 million tons. Plenty of it. It's the largest bio landmass on the planet. There are so many of them. Individually, krill can grow up to about six centimetres in length. Oh, really? I thought they were much smaller than that. No, they can grow up to uh, six centimetres and they can live for up to five years. Wow. Yeah. They live in the open sea and they congregate in dense swarms. Uh, More than 10,000 krill per cubic metre of water. Wow. Safety in numbers. So in a bath, 10,000 krill, I would say. Anyway, because of their vast numbers, they form a major diet source, right, for a huge number of marine animals, essentially supporting the Antarctic ecosystem pretty much all on their own. Krill are almost rock bottom on the Antarctic food chain. They offer a protein-rich primary food source for both penguins, whales, and all sorts of fish species that live on and around Bouvet. One of the major reasons why they feed uh, so many creatures, though, is because they do this thing where called vertical migrations. They travel to the ocean's surface during the day to feed on photoplankton, and then they go back down into the depths at night, which means that both surface and deep sea creatures all get to Everything feed has on a go the krill. on a krill. I like it. 
Krill's the guys. The universal donor of the seas. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, whales eat the most krill. They feed almost exclusively on them, and they eat about four tons a day. That's the weight of a fully grown hippopotamus. Uh, in fact, the word krill uh, itself comes from the old Norse word, krill. <laughs> it comes from the word krill, does it? <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> and that word means whale food. Ah. There you go. Uh, but whales aren't the krill's biggest predator. Guess who is, Pete? I mean, normally it's man at this point, but I suspect not on this occasion. So I'm going to put the penguins in, in charge. It's man. Uh, today, Norway leads the table of krill hunters, capturing the largest tonnage of any other nation. Why do we capture krill? Uh, well, in 2008... When did you last get a bag of krill from the supermarket? You don't eat krill. No. <laughs> I haven't had a krill sandwich in... I can't remember. <laughs> you don't get it at the cinema. <laughs> Your a bag of krill. Bag of krill. <laughs> <laughs> Salted or sweet? <laughs> buttered. Hot buttered krill. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so in 2008, Norwegian fishing company, Akar Biomarine, uh, they caught a total catch of 200,000 tonnes of krill. That's I mean, a lot of krill. They should line catch it. That'd be a challenge. Yeah, which inevitably sort of leads to the question of whether or not they should actually be fishing that amount and whether or not they're sustainable or not. Basically, any decline in krill population, given the fact that it supports so many creatures, would have really bad effects on the environment. But don't worry. <laughs> Aka Biomarine say they are using sustainable methods of krill capture, citing their 2018 award as uh, Europe's most innovative company for biotech products, which minimise the fisheries footprint, such as using a suction technique to minimise catching other fish and drying krill instead of freezing them to save energy. So we're all safe. We're all safe because they've got a krill hoover. That's <laughs> what I'm hearing. Yep. And I'm not liking it. They got an award for it, Pete. Well, yes. Sponsored by Nordic <laughs> Biomarine. <laughs> Anyway, what do they want to catch krill for? Well, I was wondering that. Yeah. Well, it feeds livestock. Oh. Right? It's a big number one uh, product for it. It's bait for other fish. So if you're out fishing, you stick some krill on the end of your hook and you're going to catch... You might catch get a whale if you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's also food for fish as well. So salmon farming, they use krill there and household pet fish. Uh, you might buy some of that. You can get little krill pills. Krill pills? Krill pills. <laughs> Take a krill pill, man. <laughs> But also humans too. Oh, we were joking on. about it, but yeah, they're rich in protein, vitamin A, and omega three fatty acids. And uh, yeah, it's used in medicinal purposes too. Uh, their enzymes are used in various treatments. Uh, but some cultures eat krill too. The Japanese call it okiyami. Have you okay. ever had okiyami? I've never had okiyami. Like a kind of shrimp, I guess. And the Norwegians eat krill paste with crackers. Now, I tried to get krill paste with crackers so that we could try it, uh, but the only krill paste I could get was for baiting fish. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know if that's the same kind of... Yeah, I'm not sure I want to take a bite on pike food if that's what was going on. <laughs> well, there you go. Anyway, not eating them is sort of understandable too. They are incredibly salty and their hard exoskeleton has to be removed before being eaten and they're fiddly, right? They're small. But the, the shell contains fluorine, which is uh, toxic in high concentration. As oh, well, so. well, I'll pass on the quill. Thank you very much. Once again, krill movement grinds to a halt on what we call Whale Out Wednesday, as strike action continues by the Union of Krill and Other Seagoing Creatures, or UCOS. Uh, we're joined today by Michael A. Krill, General Secretary of UCOS. Welcome, Michael. Glad to be here, Jonathan. Another day of disruption, Michael. Uh, what do you say to claims that this action's just going to make life difficult for ordinary krill? Well, in fact, we're helping not just our members, but all krill in this ocean and other oceans by refusing to accept the damaging actions of a few greedy whales. But a lot of people are saying that the whales need to eat, uh, and you're disrupting the natural order of things. Well, Jonathan, last year, just three whales consumed over 300 million krill. Those whales are growing fat over ordinary, decent, hard-working krill. And yet, why is no one asking why those whales need to consume such vast quantities of the ocean's resources? But a lot of krill want to drift up to the ocean surfaces. Uh, your members, though, are stopping them. Look, we're sorry for any inconvenience caused to the ocean-going public. 
but this issue has been left to go on for far too long and our members are not going to stand it anymore. And what would you say to those who say that the government should step in? Well, let's be honest, Jonathan, this is a government for Wales, by Wales. They float there, stuffing their blowholes, while life for the ordinary fish in the sea gets harder and harder. This is an extreme hard right fin government interested in nothing more than where their next bucket of quill is coming from. It's a disgrace. Okay, okay, okay we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you to the General Secretary, Michael A. Krill. Up next, the killer whales who uh, want to form a finball team. So that's it. Let's let's pop out of the water, shall we? Where have we got left to go, Pete? The sky. That's exactly right. <laughs> let's go to the sky. To space. How high are we going? To space. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so in the 1960s, the American military launches a group of 12 satellites into space. Known as Project Vela, the satellites are located in orbit at 118,000 kilometers, uh, 73,000 miles from Earth. That's one third of the distance to the moon. Wow. And each of the satellites are equipped with X-ray, neutron and gamma ray detectors and silicon photodiode sensors. Oh, good. So they got the whole gamut of sensors. And the, their mission was to collect scientific data on natural sources of space radiation and also detect nuclear detonations on Earth. That feels like that latter one was the more prominent of the tasks. We're just collecting data. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this was an effort by the USA to ensure that the Soviet Union, their enemies at that time, uh, were complying with a treaty they'd both signed not to test nuclear weapons. So... The satellites are designed so that they could identify a unique signature of a nuclear explosion and determine its location on the Earth. So they were up there, they were doing their thing for about a decade. On the 22nd of September 1979, despite being officially retired, uh, the still operating Vela Satellite 5B... My favourite. Well, that's of obviously the, 12. the cutest one, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it detected a signature, a double flash over Bouvet Island. Ooh. Mm. Now, alarmed, uh, the Americans conducted a bit of a study to identify what the cause of the flash was, uh, but they couldn't find any direct evidence to sort of indicate a nuclear explosion. Some innocent explanations were considered, like a meteoroid strike on the satellite itself, or a uh, magnostratospheric event, like a solar flare. That would have been my guess. Yeah, and uh, that might have affected the instruments as well. But ultimately, US President at the time, Jimmy Carter, he felt convinced enough that he went public and made a statement saying that an atmospheric nuclear explosion had occurred, likely as a result of a joint Israeli-South African test. Oh. Yeah. And in 2018, a new study supported that assumption, confirming that it was, in quotes, highly likely to have been a nuclear test conducted by Israel. Well, how did Norway feel about this? <laughs> yeah, not ideal, I imagine. Guys! <laughs> yeah. Wait, we've got penguins down here. Uh, either way, the origins of the double flash remain to this day officially unknown. Oh, another mystery. I know, right? And have just become known as the Vela Incident. Ooh. I like an incident. Now, assuming it was an explosion... Let's assume that. Yeah, the Vela Incident would likely have been an Israeli neutron bomb which it was confirmed they were mass-producing at that time. Now, the power of one of these bombs would have been equivalent to about three kilotons. That's an explosive force equal to 3,000 tonnes of TNT, or 12.5 terajoules of energy, which is the equivalent of burning, let's say, 426 tonnes of coal. Right. It's a lot. The explosion would have created a fireball radius of 90 metres, the size of a soccer pitch, just a one massive flame in which everything inside would have been vaporised. A thermal radiation radius of about one kilometre uh, in which anyone caught within it would have got third degree burns so severe that all the pain nerves would have been burned off. Ooh. Oh, but, well, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Mixed feelings about that. <laughs> a, a radiation radius of one kilometre, which were you caught in it, you would uh, you would be dead within a month. And 15% of survivors would eventually die of cancer before uh, because of the exposure. Yeah. And then there would be a blast damage of just over a kilometre, um, which if it were done in a, a, a urban area, uh, that would see residential buildings collapse. Injuries are universal and fatalities are widespread. 
Um, and then you would have the light blast damage radius, which probably goes up to about three kilometers. And that's where, if it again, if it were in an urban area, you'd have glass windows would all be shattered and you'd get all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, there was a lot of energy expelled above Bouvet Island. Wow. And that's all the energy I could find in Bouvet. There was a tremendous amount of energy. There was a food chain of energy. There was geothermal energy. There was nuclear energy. I thought fully energized. And a mysterious energy. A lot of mystery all around the place. I very much enjoyed that. Well, there you go. That's it. That is energy in Bouvet Island between 1950 and present day. Well, blow me down. That was remarkably excellent and I enjoyed it thoroughly for a place that was essentially a rock in the middle of nowhere. Who knew that there was so much going on in a place with nothing going on? Exactly. was excellent stuff Ryan I look forward to discussing more about it in the verdict next week but that is our show for this week thank you very much for listening uh, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or just say hello and see how we're doing you can reach out to us through the website hhepodcast.com or email Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com yeah we love to hear from you and uh, you never know you might end up featured on a future show if you're on TikTok Instagram Facebook or Twitter you can find us at hhepodcast and if you subscribe to them you'll get an alert every time we post one of our little one minute animated bites that's right and we will be back again soon with The Verdict but until then a huge thanks to you ryan oh, thank you peter and i guess that's it all that's left to say is you've been listening to history happened everywhere Thanks for coming. I didn't think you'd show up. Well, well, what is it? What What do you want? I've been thinking, and I'm sorry. Okay, and? Well, look, ever since we've split, I've not been myself. I think maybe we made a mistake. We? I. I made a mistake. I want us back together. It's too late. Don't, don't say that. It is. The damage is done. There's been so much fallout. Just listen. I don't have the energy for this. Just give me another chance. It's too late. I found someone else. Someone more stable. But what am I going to do? Well, you know what they say, there's plenty more fish in the sea. Was that a nuclear fission pun? Yes, it was. I miss your jokes. I know, but it's still over. I guess I blew it, huh? That was a bad pun. I know. I love you. I love you too. But it's still over. I understand. Well, I guess we'll always have the Paris Convention on third-party liability in the field of nuclear energy. We will. Noice!